Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. The message for this week is from our current verse-by-verse study from the book of James. In each message, we will see some practical truths for living God's way in situations and circumstances that are often out of our control. As always, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service sometime here soon in Vancouver. You can find directions, more info, and more sermons on our website at citybaptist.ca. So we're going to be in James chapter number 2 today is where we'll be. And if you take your Bibles and go there, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of James. And uh, it's, been, it's been exciting, lots of things, uh, maybe for some of you, lots of familiar um, aspects about the Christian life that you've noticed. Uh, for some of you, maybe you're hearing some things for the very first time. I know some of you who are new believers, uh, you're just learning the Bible as a whole. You're just trying to find out where the book of James is. In fact, some of you are still looking for it right now. And that's okay. That's good. That's good. Uh, And uh, so a lot of them maybe are new to you. Um, But this morning as we return to the book of James, uh, as we actually were in on Wednesday night as well, uh, spoiler, we had a Wednesday night James study as well, uh, we're going to be in chapter number two and and things are starting to happen here uh, in James' letter to the believers that are scattered abroad. They're scattered all around the Roman Empire. James, of course, was the brother of Jesus Christ and he had... uh, of actually had never even believed in Christ. He was resistant to the fact that Jesus was the son of God for most of his upbringing as we can totally relate. If your brother said, I'm the son of God, we get it. We would resist that a little bit. But eventually, especially surrounding the resurrection, James finally understood who he was. And so James very quickly became a leader in that early church there in Jerusalem that was established. And very soon he became the pastor of the church. But he wrote this letter about 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote it to the believers, as it says in verse number one of James 1, to the Jews that are scattered abroad. And so he wrote to those that had been scattered because of persecution. The early church grew tremendously in those early years, but persecution came, of course, and they were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And everywhere that they went, and this is what I love about it, everywhere they went, they started other churches, they started meeting together with other believers, they started telling people about the truth of Jesus Christ. And so these churches developed and grew, but with that came problems. You got to remember, that early church did not have the written word of God that we have today. Imagine if we had service today and I didn't have a Bible to preach from. All I had was uh, maybe some stories that had been told to me. Uh, Maybe uh, I had some of the Old Testament and I was able to connect uh, aspects of it. I had a few letters that were written to me from some church leaders. But imagine that's all they had. And so these letters, especially this one that James wrote, were so important to the early church. They would read over it and pour over it and understand every aspect of it because this was literally God beginning to give his instructions to the church. And they had a lot of issues, though, just like we have a lot of issues. I know we don't want to admit it today, but they they had a lot of issues and we have a lot of issues today. And the thing that he's going to talk about today is an issue that uh, has to deal a lot with our maturity as believers. See, immature believers always talk about their faith. Mature believers actually live out their faith. And that's the difference here. And that's what James is trying to get at. He wants us to be mature believers, people who not only hear the word, but also are doers of the word, as we talked about uh, last Sunday. And so this was such an important aspect here. But to me, it's ironic that 2,000 years later, some of the, still, some of the same problems still uh, are within the church body and within the assembly. And so today is one of those things he's going to talk about. Now, James is not a guy who, um, who kind of beats around the bush. You guys understand that, right? He gets right to it. And today's one of those messages that are not, it's not necessarily easy for us to hear uh, because he points out an aspect of our lives that none of us want to admit is there. But truthfully, if you're going to be honest today, it's there. 
and it's the subject of favoritism. I'm sure you looked at your notes. It says there, favoritism. You say favoritism, what are you talking about? Favoritism. I'll explain here as we get into the passage. But first of all, let's look at James chapter 2 and verse number 1. And I put this too low, so now I'm going to raise it up again. Here we go. Just like uh, Lazarus, right? Oh, man, that's like the cheesiest pastor joke ever. All right. <laughs> all right, <laughs> James chapter 2, verse number 1. He says this, my brethren, he's speaking to the church. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. He says, do not have the faith of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, be a respecter of persons. Now, what he's doing here is he is setting up the next 12 verses that we're going to cover this morning, and he's emphasizing the fact that a person of true Christian faith is not what he calls here a respecter of persons. In other words, this is what he's trying to get across. For the person who's a follower of Jesus Christ, a person who has faith in the Lord, it is absolutely incompatible for you to be a person of partiality, of favoritism, or of discrimination. See, we cannot combine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with a heart that places limits on those whom we will surround ourselves with. It is not in the character of God to be a respecter of persons, is it? Some of you might be thinking about Romans chapter 2, verse 11, where it talks about how God himself, for there is no respect of persons with God, and so it's not in the character of God to be a respecter of persons, and for the Christian, it should not be part of our character as well. Our God does not show favoritism when it comes to dealing with us. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't tell you and give you a list, oh, if you do these things, then you'll be my favorite, and then I'll be your God? <laughs> a lot of other religions live that way. They try to do, do, do all of these things that they're trying to do to somehow appease a God who will love them and then look out for them. But our God, he's not that way at all. He is not a respecter of persons in any way. Whether it's the color of a person's skin, the size of their bank account, uh, the matter, the number of degrees that you have after your name or the place that you hold in society to God, he goes completely unimpressed by those things. So today we're glad Jamie is back. And Jamie just finished with her master's in graphic design. I think that's the official congratulations. That's, yeah, let's congratulate her today. Okay, do you know what God thinks about that degree? Nothing. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to pick, but you know what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying? To God, he, he doesn't look at us and say, wow, well, man, Jamie, she's got a master's in graphic design. Maybe I'll just send her a little blessing, you know, <laughs> along her way or, or whatever. Uh, God does not look at us in that way. He is not a respecter of persons. Think about uh, throughout scripture. The Lord Jesus was as polite to the woman at the well who had five husbands and was living in adultery as he was to Nicodemus, one of the heads of the Sanhedrin. He was just as polite to either of them. Uh, Jesus was as gracious to the woman who touched the hem of his garment when she had a disease as he was to Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Jesus was as open to the poor blind Bartimaeus, if you remember that story. And he was as open to blind Bartimaeus, who was poor and a beggar, as he was to that rich young ruler who approached him that day. Jesus had no respect of persons. He treated everybody with the same love, with the same interest, with the same care, the same concern. He was not condescending whether he was dealing with sinners or if he was dealing with the most religious person. He was kind to them. He did not compromise when he was dealing with those who were in power. He gave both the outcasts and the untouchables the same gentle, loving compassion that he gave to the scribes and he gave to the Pharisees. Now, we know that Jesus did not approve of everybody's behavior, but he was able to look beyond their behavior and he looked to the individuals and he looked to their deepest needs and he treated them with dignity no matter what. Now as Christians, we hear that and we're like, yeah, 
go Jesus, right? <laughs> and we're like, man, that's my God, right? And he's, he's, he treated everybody the same way. And there's no respecter of persons. And we say amen to it. And we say, yes, faith does not play favorites. But James isn't writing this to get some amens from a bunch of church people. He's not writing that. He's writing this to make a point, to make a point. Because James understands us and he knows, and he, I'm sure he experienced it personally as he's going to share here in a moment. He knows that while we would agree with that statement that God is not a respecter of persons, we recognize it in the reality of our own hearts. Sometimes it's a different story. And so James, in the way that only he can do, begins to dig into this subject. And he begins to ask a series of questions that leads us to examine our own hearts today. And I, and I want to ask you to do that this morning. I want you to examine your heart in the subject of favoritism. Right now, some of you may be saying, ah, it's not a problem for me. It's not anything I struggle with. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. But I want you to really examine your heart. I promise you, if you do, the Lord might reveal something to you, okay? But as he gets into the passage, I want to look at, all, at, first of all, let's look at an illustration of favoritism. So he says, listen, Christian, you're not to be a respecter of persons. If you have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then he gives us an illustration, and you think that would be enough, right? Just make that statement. Hey, don't be a Christian as favoritism. All right, move on to the next subject, right? But no, no, he's going to dig a little bit deeper here. So he gives us an illustration. Look at verse number two. He says, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. So James is making a point here, and so what he does is he gives us a vivid case study of a situation. I have a personal belief that maybe he experienced this firsthand, and so he's, re he's revealing it to us now. Now, we can assume that these men that are mentioned here in the passage are both visitors to the church. He, the only way he describes them is on their outward appearance, how they uh, are dressed, and so he says if somebody comes to your assembly, so a gathering of people, he, uh, he, he says here, and he gives us this, this little picture. So the first man that he talks about here was someone who was rich, right? And uh, uh, he's described by his clothes. It says that he has expensive jewelry. It says he has a gold ring. Uh, in the, in the, the original word is, uh, oh, and I've been practicing it all week, so here we go. Ready? It is uh, chrysodactylios. Pretty good, eh? Uh, <laughs> we call it Chris for short. Uh, but it's the idea... <laughs> It's the, uh, it's the idea of a gold-ringed person is what it says, a gold-ringed person. So in other ways, it's somebody who's just like, check it out, right? Maybe you know somebody like that, you know, yeah, blinging, right? Today, we would say he was dripping swag is what we would say. Uh, some of you are like, what is that? Don't worry about it. Uh, but this guy comes in, and he's just decked out, you know? I mean, he's got some Jordans on, of course. <laughs> And obviously, he's got some of those. And uh, yeah, today, that's how we would look at it. You know, somebody today, he's got a really nice car and, a, you know, drives that car everywhere, even if it's a block. You know, I'm going to drive this car. I want everybody to see it. But he's somebody who had, he had obvious jewelry, obviously nicely dressed, well-dressed. And so he comes to the congregation there, and he comes to church that day, and uh, he's described in this way. But then the other man that is described, uh, it, it says that he had vile clothing on. When you think of something being vile, I mean, ugh, right? He would have been dirty, he would have been shabby, he would have been poorly dressed. The idea from the original language is that he was somebody in need. In fact, it's the same word that was used to describe Lazarus as he sat outside the gate of the rich man hoping for crumbs from his table. It's the idea of a beggar, somebody in a great need personally. Both of these men come into the church at the same time for the same service, but what James reveals to us is a completely different approach to how they are greeted when they come to the church. So for the rich man, he comes in and 
he, uh, uh, they, they make sure that he has a seat in a good place. They say, hey, welcome to church today. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sweet rings, by the way, right? You know, I have one ring. You have eight. Or whatever, you know, come on in. And they bring him in. It says that they seat him at a goodly place, which, by the way, church, a good seat in a church is at the front. I just want to say, all right? So I don't know why you choose less, but I'm saying this is a goodly seat. And so they brought him to the front, and they said, you're all nervous. And here's a, here's a goodly seat, and so he's right up near the front, and, and he's, he's right where he needs to be, and people are coming to him, and they're greeting him, and, oh, we're so glad you're here today. Man, what, you know, why are you here today? I'm so happy to see you. And, hey, don't, I think I have a friend who works for you, you know? And, and they're connecting with him, and they're doing everything they can to make sure he feels comfortable and uh, make sure that he's, uh, he feels like uh, he's, he's uh, welcome there. And, but then you have this poorly dressed man, this man in vile raiment vile raiment notice how they told him hey you can stand over here <laughs> you can stand over here or it says you can sit on my foot so that means literally you can sit on the floor you can sit on the floor now think about the the difference in treatment to the man who shows up who doesn't appear like he's wealthy and doesn't appear like he has a lot he, he's not treated with dignity or comfort he's not welcomed he's treated almost with suspicion why don't you stand here in the back and wait and we'll see if we have a seat for you maybe later on or if you like, you can go and sit on the floor over here, out of sight where maybe people won't notice you. Now, the thing that we can notice is that the treatment of both men is solely based off of their outward appearance and nothing else. Solely based off of their outward appearance. Outward appearance. And the truth is, this continues on in the church even today. Even today. Now, we've had 2,000 years of church history, right? We've had this book for 2,000 years, this passage for 2,000 years, and we've had access to it. And for us, it looks a little bit differently today. It's maybe not as outward. It's maybe not as obvious. But all of us have been guilty of the same reaction, maybe not in an outward way, but inwardly. And there's something that's so strange about this when I read this passage because part of me, when I read it, is saddened to hear this, right? You read it and you're like, man, that's, I don't want to go to that church, right? But then there's also a part of me that understands it, right? Now th just think about it for a minute and put yourself in that situation. There's a part of you that's like, oh, that's not how it should be. But there's a part of you that <laughs> relates to it. And the reason you can relate to it is because often that's the picture of our own heart. We've had that even here at City Baptist, people who come to church and you know, they, they're, they're nice, they seem like great people, and you're like, oh man, it's so great, you know, and they get a, a warm welcome, and everybody's connecting with them, and this is so great, and then there's sometimes there's others that are maybe not, not so that way. And you ask yourself the question, are they going to stick around, right? Are they going to just ask for money? What's going to happen? And you're concerned about it, and you're basing it off of the outward appearance. And we read this, and we just say, oh, that's so sad, what a terrible place, but yet we do the exact same thing. That's why James in verse number four says, are you not then being partial in yourselves? Meaning, aren't you showing favoritism in yourself and are become judges of evil thoughts? Meaning your thoughts, you're judging somebody in an evil way and you are showing favoritism to a person simply because of the way they look on the outside. And as much as we try to deny that we are this way, I really believe if we ask ourselves this question, it reveals within each of us how we are often guided by wrong motives. How we often allow someone's outward appearance or an outward expression determine their character or determine their worth to us. And as well, obviously in the context of this passage, sometimes it brings up the question, do we even want this person in our local assembly, in our church? The story's told about 
Mahatma Gandhi, and you guys have, I'm sure, heard of him before. And uh, uh, he's a, a very famous guy, Hindu, and the story is told in his own autobiography um, that when he was a student and he was really searching for truth, one of the things that he had come to after reading the Bible and searching that out is that he had discovered that he felt, anyway in his own heart, he felt that Christianity would actually, following the teachings of Jesus, would actually be the answer uh, to the caste system in India because that was something he resisted. And so he decided that one day he was going to go to a Christian church, and so he did. He went to a Christian church, and when he got there uh, to this church, it was the first time he'd ever gone, and he had, he had to sum up a lot of courage to go. But when he got there, he was greeted at the door by uh, someone in the church and a group of people, and what they said to him was this, you can go and worship with your people over there at the temple. This is a Christian church. You need to go back over there and worship in your own temple. At that point, he returned, of course, and he concluded that Christianity was not a faith he could agree with because Christians were not truly peaceful people. And he decided never to return to a Christian church again. And this is what he said about the situation. He said, if Christians have caste differences and play favoritism, then I might as well remain a Hindu. That's what he said. I might as well remain a Hindu because of the way that he was treated at a Christian church. Now, unless you are still resisting the fact that maybe life is not this way, I want to share with you a quick video. If you know, if you're online, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, social experiments, you know, it's kind of interesting to go. And, and I found this one uh, that was pretty interesting. And I just want to share, it's just a, a minute and a half or so. Um, but again, I think it reveals uh, who we are as, as humans. Let's see, here we go. He almost ran him over. <laughs> Watch this. He jumps off, it comes over. whole group of people comes over. And... Um, I thought it was really interesting, just a little social experiment he did. And, and he did nothing different, did he? He did exactly the same thing in the exact same place. The only thing that was different was the way he was dressed and his clothes. And to me, that just really reveals to us the, the, the true aspects of how we are as human beings. That we take so much, uh, we put so much stock in the outward appearance. And yet what James is trying to get across to us is this is not how it should be. This is not the way that our faith should be illustrated. And he's trying to show us that there should be no distinction. There should be no uh, uh, distinctions in our social class or standing or position or wealth or prestige or our recognition. And we should not have favoritism in the way that we treat those that come to our church, nor should we have favoritism in the way that we treat those that are already in our church. It is an opposition, opposition to God's plan for his people. And so James here gives us his illustration, but he's going to continue now. And so now he's going to talk about God's perspective on favoritism. So we've seen this illustration. I think if you search your heart, you understand that uh, this is often how we approach life. But now we're going to see what God's perspective is on this. Look at verse number five. He says, hearken my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? Now, he, he covers a couple different things here. I'm going to try to boil it down just to a few quick thoughts here. The first thing that we understand about the way God looks at favoritism is that in God's eyes, the poor um, are actually the rich. You notice how he says there in verse, uh, verse number five, he says, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? Now, if you know anything about the Bible, I think you'd have to agree with this statement, wouldn't you? That God often used those that seemingly are poor in this world's eyes, poor in their, even their approach or the way that they were brought up, uh, that God uses them to do incredible things. And sometimes they have the biggest impact in this world. I was thinking about some of them. Think about Moses, right? Now, Moses, I mean, he was born into slavery. 
Now, there were some certain situations, but he was still the son of a slave. I was thinking about David. Uh, before he became king, of course, he was a shepherd. That's the lowliest of op- occupations. I mean, he, he, was, he came from nothing. Jacob, though his father had money, Jacob had to sell himself into indentured servitude in order to win or to marry his wife. He had nothing to his name. Uh, Mary, of course, a young teenager chosen to mother the Son of God. They were, uh, the, the disciples were poor fishermen. I love the story of the widow woman who gave her last penny, gave the last bit of money that she had, and yet God touched such a powerful lesson in her life. So many examples in the Bible prove to us that God uses those uh, that are poor. In fact, his own son came not as a king, right, but he came as a baby. And so God has showed this to us over and over and over again, not to tell us that a wealthy person is exempt from heaven, But what we do understand about this Bible is that riches, often wealth, can become a barrier to someone recognizing their need of God. Now, when we talk about wealth, wealth in the Bible versus wealth today is a whole different thing, though, isn't it? Compared to a vast majority of the world, we are extremely wealthy people, aren't we not? We are. We're very wealthy people. The fact that we can go and get in a vehicle and go where we want, whenever we want, I mean, that right there is your 80% of the world you've already just (laughs) eliminated. The fact that we live in, in cl- and we have clean water to drink, we have access to, to so many uh, luxuries that to us aren't even luxuries, but to the rest of the world they would love to have, is an understatement. And we, we miss out on that. But often, even in North America, especially our own wealth becomes a barrier because we truly do have everything we need. And if we needed something, we could get it if we really needed it. There's a way to find it. But yet what's so funny about it is that he says here, we, uh, 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 th- God uses the poor, but then he says with the rich, they're often the ones that often oppress us, but yet we still want to be like them. <laughs> I thought that was so, so ironic, he said there. He said, you're, you're partial, and then in verse number, uh, verse number six, you've despised the poor. God uses the poor, you despise the poor. And then he says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Meaning it is the rich, it's those that have many, uh, uh, have a lot of luxuries of this world, they're often the ones who, take advantage of people. They're the ones who, who, uh, uh, who oppress others. They use their platform to blaspheme the very God who has called us to his service, but yet when one of them comes to church, we're like, hey, we're so glad you're here today. This is so great. <laughs> this is so great. It's amazing to me how infatuated we get with like celebrities out there today. I'm not bashing celebrities yet. Just give me a second. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Man, so many people are infatuated with, but these people very often don't use their wealth for good. They often create content that is destructive to homes and to families. They uh, use their platform to push ideas and blaspheme, really, the God that I love and serve, the God who loves me. And, and yet we're still like, wow, so great. I want to you know, be like that. And, we, and we, we look up to these people. Now, the poor don't have a better chance at heaven because of their poverty. We recognize that. But the truth he's trying to get across to us is often it's the poor in this world that have a a true grasp and understanding of God's real work in their life. And God can do the greatest work really in their hearts. I think of the times even in my own life, the times of despair, the times where I've been poor in spirit, right? I've been poor in physical health. I've been poor in, in the wealth of this world that God has often taught me the greatest lessons. So he's trying to show us here that, listen, we despise the poor. You look down on them. He says, but that's the people that God often uses for the greatest good. For many of you, it was in your time of poverty, your time of, of discouragement, your time of ill health that God worked the most in your life. And yet we despise, but then we still idolize the rich. He says, something here is wrong. 
we need to recognize that the poor are actually the rich, those that may not seem to have all of this world's uh, treasure. But then he says, secondly, that favoritism breaks God's law. Favoritism breaks God's law. So first of all, recognize the, under, the, the, the difference here between the poor and the rich. We cannot just uh, favor one over the other. But then he says in verse number eight then, he says, if ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if ye have respect to persons, notice what he says here, ye what? Commit sin. It's sin. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, uh, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And you're like, that escalated quickly, right? <laughs> we went from uh, poor and rich to uh, adultery and murder. Like, what is he, what is he talking about? Let, let me walk you through this. Here's what he's trying to say. He's saying that as believers, okay, we are to be guided, first of all, above all things, by love towards one another. It was God's command to Israel back in Leviticus chapter 19, and it was God's command, uh, uh, something that Jesus emphasized during his earthly ministry. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus considered this one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, meaning to love God with the totality of your being, with everything that you are. And then he says in verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, meaning it's, all, it, it's right there with it. He says this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Probably one of the hardest things to do in the entire <laughs> experience of life loving others like we love ourselves because man we love ourselves don't we we love ourselves but we're to love others and then he says on these two commandments hang all the law we just read that the law and also then the prophets and so by comparison what he is saying is this living a life of favoritism towards one type or one group of people is sin and it's a violation of God's royal law the the top law it's interesting this is the only place that royal law is used in the whole bible it's the only place that it's used and described in this way. And he calls it the royal law because it is above all else. We are to love others. And so if we are not doing that, we are breaking that law. And what James is warning us about here is the danger of selective obedience. This was the great failing of the Pharisees. They were very meticulous in understanding the law, weren't they? And they were very meticulous in knowing uh, the things that they should not break. But then there was whole aspects of it that they completely ignored. And they said, well, I'm doing this, therefore it doesn't really matter. He says, no, you need to be very careful about that. Because selective obedience fails to see the fundamental unity of the law. And that's why he brings up the idea of adultery and murder. If we don't commit adultery, but then we murder somebody, <laughs> uh, you can't just be like, well, I didn't commit adultery, therefore I'm okay. What he's saying is that, no, if you commit, if you sin in any areas, you break any aspect of the law, you have broken the law in its entirety. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but I want to explain to you why he said that, Okay. He's trying to show us here why we are sinners and in need of redemption is what he's trying to show to us here. See, the law of God is a code of conduct. It tells us what God wants us to do and it tells us what God does not want us to do. We teach our boys from an early age, you know, sin is anything that we say, hear, uh, or, or do that breaks God's law. Did I miss one, hon? Say, think, not hear. Yeah, sorry. Say, think, or do. And we have these little actions, you know. Say, think, or do. That breaks God's law. And it helps identify what sin is, okay? But any failure in that, any, any sin in any aspect of the law makes us transgressors. And what it does is it disqualifies us from standing acceptable in God's presence. Now, remember, God did not give us the law 
so that we can be saved by keeping them. Okay, and this is the mental shift we need to have. He did not give us this, the word and say, okay, if you do all of these things, then you'll be saved. No, no, if that's the case, none of us would be saved because we've all broken, broken his law. But God gave us his laws to show us how we fall short of his righteousness. And then once we recognize how short we fall of his righteousness, we then understand how much we need a savior then. And that's the whole purpose of the law. The law points us to Christ. It points us, and the way it points us to us is by showing us how short we have fallen. See, the purpose of it is to convict us as transgressors. You notice that in verse number nine, so that we will flee to Christ. Now, here's what we do, though, as humans, right? And this is how many people react. One of the hardest things when I share the gospel with people is to get them to understand that they are a sinner, right? You need to understand that you're a sinner. I'm not a sinner. And so then we'll say something, we'll go, have you ever, have you ever lied before? Yeah, but it's just a lie, right? Because we look at it in varying levels of sin, don't we? And we're like, well, I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. I stole from my boss, but you know, I haven't done those things. And so we, we weigh them, right? And it's because the way that humanity views it or the way that we would do it if we were God is that if you live a certain way and you do all of these things, then you'll earn your way up to heaven. By the way, that's most of the religions of the world. It's all about what you do to get to heaven. Christianity is about what Christ has done already for us on the cross. But we level it in that way and we say, well, I haven't done these terrible things. But yet, even sinning in this area of favoritism, then we are guilty of breaking God's law. That's how the Bible can say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, humans, we say, well, I haven't done these terrible things. So I'm not a sinner. I'm just like, you know, I just do, you know, I say white, little white lies, right? Okay, is it a sin or is it not a sin? That's why God makes these blanket, seemingly, uh, seemingly harsh statements by saying, if you've broken one part of it, you've broken it all. And the reason is so that we actually would recognize our need of a savior because we only look at big sins as barriers to a home in heaven people still have this idea that they're going to go to heaven and knock on the door you know and there's going to be an angel there and be like your name you know okay i found you why should i let you in and we list all that is not what it's about okay there's only one way you're getting to heaven and that's through jesus christ and his gift and accepting his gift in the cross first john chapter two and two tells us that he is the propitiation that means he is the appeasement he is the atonement for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Any violation of God's law determines us in need of a savior and praise the Lord, he provided a payment for that sin. And so James is trying to get us to understand that, listen, in your heart, you just have a little bit of favoritism, but we gotta recognize that's a, that's a, that's a problem. It is sin. It's something that we need to get right with God. And that is God's perspective, his strong perspective on favoritism, and it brings damage to your heart and it brings damage to others, especially within the church body. So that's God's perspective. But lastly, I want to share with you now the dangers of favoritism. We'll take a minute and get a little practical here, just for a moment. In uh, verse number 12 and 13, we'll finish the uh, passage that we're in today. James says in verse 12, so speak ye and so do, meaning just you need to do it, okay? (laughs) But then he says this, He's telling us we should do it, but he's also saying you do this (laughs) as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Okay, what, what is he saying? The danger of favoritism is having a heart of judgment towards others based on whatever factors or circumstances you come up with. The danger is is that you have a heart of favoritism, but yet you don't consider it an offense. 
That's the real danger of favoritism because it's a game that you play internally. Maybe nobody else even knows about it, but you judge someone. You have a, a, a resistance towards them, but yet you don't consider it an offense. In fact, sometimes we try to justify it, right? Well, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to protect my family or, or, uh, or I, I just can't relate to that person and I just, you know, I better just stay away from them instead of share God's love. But yet God says here that it is sin. And then to emphasize this, what he says, he says this. If we lack mercy, then you'll also be judged without mercy as well. You say, well, what are you talking about? Christ died on the cross. He's given mercy to all. What, what is he saying? James is not suggesting that we secure salvation for ourselves by showing mercy to the poor and needy, okay? He's a way better theologian than that, okay? So don't, don't, don't uh, sell him short on that. What he is saying is this. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But for those that are truly saved, an evidence of your salvation is that you will be a person who lives showing mercy to others as well. And the reason that you show mercy to others as well is because you understand the mercy of God in your own life. There's a commentator by the name of Curtis Vaughn, and, and he, he put this all in a, in a summary. And I just want to read this to you here real quickly uh, as we close. He said this, he said, James surely does not mean that by showing mercy to man, we procure mercy from God. That would make salvation a matter of human merit and would contradict the whole tenor of scripture. What James, mean is that, James means is that by failing to show compassion on our fellow men, we prove ourselves to be utterly devoid of Christian character. Christian people are the children of God. They bear his image. They copy his example. It is therefore impossible for them to fail to share in his compassion to fail to reflect his spirit of mercy. See, for those that have been truly saved, we will give evidence of the merciful character of the God who saved us. And as we give evidence of that mercy that God has given to us, it assures us that we are saved because we will recognize that we have nothing to fear in the day of judgment ourselves. We'll receive that mercy because we have given mercy. The reason we give mercy is because we've received mercy. Does that make sense? <laughs> Some of you look a little blank today. That's okay. It's a tough passage. It's a tough passage to really to understand and to get in our heart. But favoritism can be a real problem in our lives. All of you, I'm sure, have experienced someone being judgmental towards you for no reason at all. Don't you love that? It's like my favorite thing ever, right? <laughs> All of you have had friends come to you and say, yeah, this person doesn't like you because of this. And you're like, that's not even true, right? They made a judgment about you, or whatever, whatever it may be. None of us likes that. And within, within a church, and that's what James is speaking to here, here, within a church, it's a plague that can hinder the work of God. It really can. James is saying that real faith is not indicated by avoiding big sins, <laughs> but how we treat other people, especially those that are in need. That's a true reflection of the heart of a believer. There's a lot of unbelievers, a lot of non-Christians who don't commit adultery and don't murder people, right? We know that. There's human laws to keep that in, in, in check. But the signs of a true Christian is that you're willing to love others and show mercy to others no matter what. Amen. No matter what they look like, no matter what they're wearing, no matter how they show up. And it's a heart issue is what he's talking about. And it's a reflection of us understanding the mercy of God to us. We do not deserve mercy. We do not deserve salvation. But yet he gave it to us completely and totally 
without asking anything in return. And so because of that, we then should give mercy and show mercy to those as well who are in need. Now, personally, we need to apply this test into our own lives. By the way, don't take this book and apply it to somebody else's life. Be like, I don't think they're showing favoritism. Don't, don't do that, okay? <laughs> Make it inward. It's all about you, okay? Apply it to yourself. And the questions that James asks, uh, demands, we need to ask ourselves. How is your heart in this matter of favoritism? Are you transgressing the royal law, which is to show love? All of us have to answer for ourselves. Now, corporately as a church, it's easy for us today to, as a church family, for all of us to have an idea in our mind of what our church should be like, right? We do that. We all have an idea like, oh man, it'd be great if it's like this. And, and we have this certain picture in our mind, but we have to remember that God's the one who builds the church, right? And not us. And so for us as a church to have, um, you know, kind to everyone, but when a certain type of person walks in, we're just a little more smiley, right? We're a little more friendly <laughs> because it's a certain kind of person. Listen, we should never have that kind of discrimination as a church. No one may even see it in your life. They may never recognize it. No one would ever pick up on it, but God knows our hearts and God sees that in us. And the thing is, is that if a church, you know, you hear examples of churches, you're like, wow, that's a strong, you know, missions church, and that's a strong evangelistic church, and that church is strong in this. The reason churches get strong in certain areas is because they work on it. And for us as City Baptists, I want us to be a church that's strong in compassion, <laughs> a church that's strong and intentional in caring for those that have real needs. I understand we live in a city with a lot of great needs. We live in a city, there's a lot of issues here, and, and, and we try, and a lot of people are trying to do everything they can. I've mentioned this before. They say in the downtown east side, over a million dollars a day is spent in aid in that community, and it continues to get worse. We know as believers the answer is not necessarily money, right? We know that. We know there's other aspects to it, but as a church, what are we doing or what can we do? How are we creating an environment that does care for those in need, that cares for those that have uh, difficulty, that need help? As believers, we are to intentionally submit to God's word in this area. And it's a choice that God wants us to make, both individually, but also corporately. And I want to encourage you with that today. It's kind of an out there passage a little bit, a little bit different in our approach today. But I want to encourage you with that thought. Are you showing favoritism in the way that you deal with other people, even within our church body? Are you showing favoritism or maybe there's someone who maybe comes into church that you would not approach or you wouldn't talk to or someone that you would, depending on how they looked on the outward appearance? We need to be very aware of our hearts in that and recognize that true mercy is shown because of an understanding of God's mercy. And it may be today that you just fully haven't comprehended God's mercy in your life. Personally, you haven't understood that. Because that does make a difference for us. And uh, I trust that God has spoken to you in some way. We hope today's message was an encouragement in your relationship with Christ. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will.